0: Well, I just want to first start by saying I'm just so thankful uh, and grateful to have been a part of your lives for this short time. Um, and I find it an honor to give you all a charge, a charge before you enter this next stage of your life. And, and to do so, I wanted to do it from the book of Luke in chapter 12 from one of Jesus' teachings. Um, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. The text reads, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son and his teaching here. And Lord, we're praying and asking that you would impart spiritual wisdom and discernment to us this morning so that we might receive this word and walk in a way worthy of the gospel. And Father, we give you all the glory, all the honor for this milestone in their lives, how you have preserved them up until this day, all by your grace. So we acknowledge, Father, although we're honoring them, it's because of you. And so, Father, may this message serve to to press into their hearts, their need to seek you first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by establishing the context uh, in which Jesus delivers this teaching. Back in the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 12, verse 1, the author Luke tells us a little bit. He says, so many thousands of the people had to gather together that they were trampling over one another. So while Jesus delivers this message, imagine a giant crowd. Some are aggressively pushing others out of the way. Some in the crowd uh, approve of Jesus. Others in the crowd, like the Pharisees and scribes, despise him. Some are indifferent. They don't care. And with thousands gathered, Jesus and his disciples, they had to be well aware of the potential for chaos and hostility. And right before our passage begins, Jesus seizes this opportunity with all of these people staring at and pressing upon him to encourage his disciples to boldly declare the truth without fearing man's response. And for example, he says to them in verses 8 and 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, men you see, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And it's in this context as, as Jesus speaks forth just these weighty words that a, that a man from the crowd says, hold on, hold on. And that's where our passage begins. Chapter 12, verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now it's, under, it's important for us to understand that context because it's implicitly revealing the character of the questioner. Think about it. While, while Jesus is dropping truth bombs, right, uh, uh, solemn, uh, eternal realities he's speaking about, all this man is concerned about is some dispute he's having with his brother about his father's possessions. Money. While the, the way, the truth, and the life in flesh stands right before him, he's preoccupied with earthly matters. And so already from the context, we are seeing what Jesus will make explicit in his response. This man from the crowd is greedy. He's greedy for his own gain. Now, what exactly is he telling Jesus to do when he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance? What is he saying? Well, Luke doesn't give us enough details to give a definitive answer. But from what we learn in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew community, the oldest brother received a double portion of his father's possessions. It's likely then that as the younger brother, this man is unsatisfied with his size of the inheritance. And so he says to Jesus, teacher, make my brother split this portion. Make him split it with me. Jesus' response to this man's demand comes in two parts. The first, Jesus responds with a question, right? Typical Jesus move. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, But he, Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In this context, that word judge carries a strong legal force. It evokes the idea of a person who, who mediates and decides legal conflicts in a court session. And that word translated arbitrator comes from the same word that's used in verse 13, actually. When the man says to Jesus, Tell my brother to divide. To divide the inheritance. That's the same word arbitrator is kind of coming from. So it could be called divider. It could be translated divider as well. So to the man's demand then, Jesus asked, who appointed me judge, basically? And really, Jesus is not genuinely looking for new information here, right? He knows that no political or religious figure has made him a judge. He knows that. So although Jesus responded in the form of a question, he's really making a strong assertion in order to make the man think. In other words, Jesus' initial response is, I'm not here to preside over human legal affairs. I didn't come to enforce mundane laws. I came for a greater purpose. And from the gospel accounts as a whole, we know that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of his father and to save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus is here for. And if the man wasn't blinded by his excessive desire for wealth, he might have asked Jesus about the kingdom instead of trying to build his own. Now, now the second part of Jesus' response to this man comes in verse 15. And and this is where we see Jesus make explicit, what's driving this man? What's behind his demand? What's motivating it? Because after clarifying that he, Jesus, didn't come to serve in a human judicial system, Jesus immediately urges the man and those listening in verse 15 saying this, take care, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That command to take care is translated from a word that in its most basic sense means to see. It just means to look at something. But in this context, the word takes on a richer meaning. Jesus is not merely telling the people to notice the the color of a bird or a plant or a flower. But rather, he's commanding them to make sure something happens. Like, Like when I was working in retail, my boss would say, Robert, see to it that those new items are put out over there. That is, with your own eyeballs, verify that this merchandise is put on the shelves properly. Jesus is saying something similar when he says to them, take care, see to it. And this is further proven by what comes after when he says take care and be on guard, which is translated from a word that means to to be ready to protect or or defend against something. For example, earlier in this gospel account, Luke uses that same word to describe what the shepherds were were doing when uh, an angel appeared before them and announced the birth of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse a of Luke, uh, he writes, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. That is, the shepherds want standby. stand by. They're watching, they're protecting, they're guarding their sheep from thieves and wild animals. Now, growing up, I never lived so close to a lake before. And so what that means, I've never really encountered seagulls that often until I moved to Sheboygan. And you guys laugh because you know. And so for a few days this past week, uh, our church parking lot became the playpen for two baby seagulls. Oh, you might say, oh, that's so sweet. That was my first response, until they tried to kill me. At least twice this week, I was walking home from work. I live across the street. Seagulls have carried out air raids, circling me from way up high, diving toward my head. On the first day, totally unaware of how protective these seagulls are of their young, I didn't know that, I carelessly walked near the babies, you know, just walking and... And as I crossed the parking lot, that is, until I heard angry squawking and saw so white birds I'm like, coming at me. I'm like, that's not the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm like, hold on, hold on, this is out here, it's getting real. Um, so I sprinted home in fear of my life, and I reached the, the, uh, the safety of my porch, and uh, I'm looking back verbally expressing my horror and shock, and my wife stands out the door, she's like, what, who are you talking to? And then I told her, you know, quickly, I just defended my life against these flying little raptors. Um, Now, I can tell you this, guys. After that first encounter, I didn't walk across that parking lot again without being on full alert, right? Intently listening to every sound, making note of every movement above my head. In other words, I was on guard, taking extreme care to protect myself against these little wild beasts of the air. You guys laugh. It was really serious. I came to ask him. I came in frustrated like these things are going to kill somebody. Oh, okay. And, and did you know that Jesus calls us to be on guard? Did you know that? To vigilantly protect ourselves against something far more deadly and destructive than seagulls. Jesus says to the man and those listening, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. And put simply, covetousness is greediness. It's that insatiable lust or desire to have more. More money, more cars, more electronics. Nowadays in the age of COVID, more toilet paper and disinfectant wipes. And no, covetousness doesn't care about all, how much it already has. And it doesn't care about what others need covetousness only cares about more 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 it's like drinking salt water the more we drink the thirstier we become and it's important to note that little word all all Jesus says take care and be on guard against all covetousness that is as disciples of Jesus he calls us to watch out for every form and every expression of this lustful greedy desire for more And so I was thinking for a good diagnostic question, to get at the covetousness in our hearts, we might ask ourselves, what in my life do I always want more of? No matter how much I accumulate, I always want more shoes, clothes, golf clubs, Plants, money, house decor, kitchen appliances, electronics, gadgets, Netflix, netflix I don't watch it, uh, cosmetic products, essential oils, video games, and as Americans, the list goes on and on and on and on. What stuff do we continue to hoard? What things and possessions are always ever piling up? Jesus says to us, dear American Christian, take care. And be on guard against this desire to always want more. And after delivering that stern warning, Jesus then presents the listeners with with one simple, yet yet powerful reason that they should guard their hearts against this covetousness. Start reading with me again at the beginning of verse 15. Jesus says, Take care. And be on guard against all covetousness. Why, Jesus? For because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That word life in Jesus' statement refers to both a person's physical and spiritual life as a whole. In other words, storing up money and possessions can't ensure our next heartbeat, nor give us any true lasting purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment or salvation. According to Jesus, then, no matter how rich or wealthy, no matter how many homes or cars we own, no matter how large our retirement accounts become, none of it, none of it has the power to give life. Put another way, billionaires die too. In fact, did you know that in 2017, it must have been the year of billionaires dying. 25 died. And guess what? They didn't take anything with them. Nothing. Now, that's Jesus' main point in this passage. But to, to make the truth more vivid, he tells them a parable, a story to illustrate his teaching. The main character of the parable and the overall context is introduced in verses 16 and 17. Starting in verse 16, Luke writes, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, a few observations to know. One, this man was not a villain. He wasn't a swindler. That is, there's no indication in the text that he did anything to unjustly acquire his wealth. As far as we can tell, he's just a hard-working, industrious farmer. Two, this man was already rich. Jesus says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So this is not his first successful crop, but it's extraordinarily large this year. In fact, it's so big that the farmer has a dilemma. Every farmer wants this dilemma. He doesn't have enough space to store the surplus. And three, when Jesus says the man thought to himself, that word translated thought doesn't mean he just gave a passing thought, a brief thought. It means he thought and reasoned with thoroughness and completeness. He really considered this. That means as a successful farmer, he was business savvy. He thought through his options. So we know he's business savvy by how he reasoned, but it also gives us more insight. It helps us understand his character by what he never mentions. Because although he gives serious consideration to finding a solution for his problem, not once, not once in his deliberation does he mention God or how his wealth could help somebody. Instead, the rich man does something different. He devises a two-fold plan centered on himself. The first step is laid out in verse 18. Look there with me. It says, And he said, I will do this. Here's the plan. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. So after a thorough deliberation, the man decides the best way forward is to tear down his present barns and build larger ones. And, and this, is, this, is, this is key. It shows again the competence of this man. First, by choosing to tear down the smaller barns to build larger ones, the man doesn't take away any space from his future harvest. He's still got all the same land, just more storage, And second, he chooses to save the crop instead of selling all of it and then oversaturating the market, which would drive the prices down. And this way, by storing away the crops, he's ensuring that he will be able to sell his crop for higher prices in the future. And so again, we gather from this part of the plan that he's a very, very astute businessman. So far, you might be wondering to yourself, what's the problem? I mean, we're American. (laughs) Uh, I mean, he's not unjustly acquiring the grain. He had a great crop, and now he's just trying to manage his business well. Why then is Jesus presenting this man as the exemplar of greed? Because that's what Jesus is doing here, if he's just doing good business. Well, to answer this question, we need to note that Jesus delivered this parable during his ministry in the region of Galilee, which was one of the centers of the farming industry in Israel. It had very fertile soil, so they grew all sorts of crops like grapes, figs, olives, and wheat. Now, as a society sustained by farming, the livelihood of people depended on the success of crop production, obviously. It was an agrarian society. And for those who didn't own land, which is a lot of people, most people, they walked a fine line between just having enough to get by and desperate poverty. Just walking that line. And with this understanding of the economical context, then, that so many people in this area genuinely lived on the cusp of going hungry to build larger barns, not because he wanted to increase his production capacity But to just store up more goods for himself would have been viewed by those in the community as one scholar comments as extremely odd or downright monstrous. And this self centered nature of the man becomes blatantly obvious in the second part of his twofold plan. He's gonna build bigger barns, right? In verse 19, and then he's gonna, it says, with the prospect of a Successful building project in mind, the man says this to himself I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Ironically, the man directly addresses his soul, yet his plans contain no spiritual dimension. It's purely materialistic, it's completely focused on satisfying bodily desires. He he looks upon the abundance of his wealth, an amount that he is certain will last many years. And he exhorts himself to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And and the idea behind this exhortation is really simple. It's self-indulgence. That's that's what he's saying to himself. Indulge your every desire. He, He gains all the financial security he will ever need in his one great aim, his life Goal is to take it easy, eat and drink, go to all the finest restaurants and celebrate his own personal achievements. Although the success of his crop surely depended on the sunshine and rain given by God, there is not one thought given to thanksgiving. Surely there are widows and orphans in his community, but he makes no mention of helping them. What about the local synagogue? I'm sure they could have benefited from his surplus. But all of his planning, all of his scheming is about himself. You can even see this in his language. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Do you see the pattern? I, 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 my, my, my. It's all about him, his possessions, his joy, his self sufficiency. And be sure to know where he finds his security. When he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, therefore, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, he bases his safety, his well-being, and future upon ample goods, stuff, not God. And in verse 20, we learn that this was a very, very poor choice when his plan is abruptly thwarted by God. Verse 20 says, But God said to him, fool. Man, God calls you a fool? This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So far, God has been noticeably absent from the man's thoughts and plans the entire time. But now God shows up to give his evaluation. And from God's perspective, the man is a fool. He lacks good and sound judgment. He's unwise. He's senseless. But wait, isn't this the successful businessman? Isn't this the guy with piles and piles of grain? How can God call him a fool? Well, for the same reason Jesus calls the religious leaders fools. Earlier in this gospel account in Luke chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus says, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In that context, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for being so zealous to to wash cups and do dishes, yet they are the same ones who will have Jesus, the innocent pure Son of God, murdered out of jealousy and greed. So while they may appear wise, they may appear discerning as religious leaders, they have no genuine concern for God and so are declared fools by Jesus. In the same way, this rich man has no concern for God or his neighbor. And in God's eyes, anyone who ignores or neglects him, anyone who treats him as an insignificant add-on or accessory to life, anyone who doesn't make advancing God's eternal kingdom their primary aim in life, but instead, seeks to establish their puny, temporary own personal kingdom on earth. No matter how successful you are, you are a fool in God's eyes. Because one day, their souls will be acquired from God, just like this rich man's. The verse says, verse 20, but God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared whose will they be? I want you to note that stark contrast. While the man counted on his wealth to supply him life for many years. While he he plotted and schemed, he had his whole future planned out. Maybe like you guys. That night his soul was required of him by God. That night There was no future. And and that word required, it's interesting too because it can carry the idea of demanding something back that was given to you as a loan. Dear friends, God gives us life. God owns the breath in our lungs. He determines every beat of our heart. We are not self-sufficient. Our life belongs to him ultimately. Ultimately. And the day is coming when he will demand it back, often when you least expect it. And the question then becomes, the things that we have prepared, the possessions, the cars, the homes, the fine dining, the luxurious clothes, the accolades, whose will they be then? Put another way, the parable teaches us that there will be no U-Haul attached to your hearse, right? Right? Now, in verse 21, Jesus summarizes the main point of this parable. He brings it to a conclusion. Just like this rich man is a fool, in verse 21, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Dear friends, that's exactly what this rich farmer did. He selfishly hoarded money and possessions without any regard for God or his neighbor, thinking that's how he could secure his future. But while he successfully laid up treasures for himself, he failed to be rich toward God. And and, and that's important to note because let me make it clear. The problem was not, was not that the man was financially prosperous. That's not the problem. It's that he failed to use his wealth for the advancement of God's kingdom. That's the problem. Instead, he used it to build his own kingdom. And we Are just as foolish if we do the same. So, students, don't enter the workforce. Don't enter and go to college to make more money or to even have a successful job. Go to college or the workforce to advance God's kingdom. That's why you go. Don't make your life go merely to become a plumber or a doctor, or an engineer, or an artist, or a nurse. Make being a disciple of the risen Lord Jesus your life aim. And learn well from this rich man's mistake. Just because you seem to have your whole life ahead of you, don't foolishly neglect your relationship with God because we don't know when our souls will be required of us. It could be this night. It could be this night. And for those of us who are not graduating seniors, let us heed the same warning from Jesus' teaching this morning. Let us take this opportunity to re-examine the goals of our life and truly discern, are we just building bigger barns? Or are we actually advancing the kingdom of God? Are we following the vision given to us by a penniless homeless man who was crucified and considered a nobody or are we following the american dream our soul will be required of us it's given to us by god as a gift and our aim is to advance his kingdom that's the aim of our lives let's pray father i'm so grateful for the mission It gives us so much purpose, so much meaning. Life is so empty without advancing your kingdom. There is nothing but sorrows for those who go after other gods. But we're prone to wander, Lord. We're we're prone to to think that we can make it on our own. We're prone to, to make bigger barns and to find false security in things. And so, Father, we ask you now, have mercy on us. Deliver us from our own foolishness and give us the wisdom of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.